Hey guys, Anthony here. Just a quick note before the show starts. I am going out of town for a wedding slash mini vacation, so no new episode next week. We will be back the following week, Wednesday, September 20th, with episode 13. So make sure that you're subscribed on all of your podcast listening platforms. That way you know when the new episode goes up. All right, guys, on with the show. Welcome to the 12th episode of the comic show on Monkey's Fighting Robots. This week, we are reviewing Batman number 30, Made Men number one from Oni Press, and Scales and Scoundrels number one from Image Comics. And we are joined by beat reporter Gary Maloney to discuss Marvel Comics versus retailers. I'm very excited for that conversation. I'm your host, Matthew Sardo. I'm also the co-founder of MonkeySpidingRobots.com. Joining me in the conversation is my co-host, editor of the comic book section on Monkey Spiding Robots, Anthony Composto! What's up, Internet? If you like the show, subscribe on Blog Tech Radio, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. It's really helpful. It helps us get found by new listeners and helps us rank. Feedback is very welcome. Comment, tweet at us. Let us know how we're doing and what books we should be reading. Uh, kind of like Alex Blacksley did. Nice little segue happening here. Alex reached out to us on Twitter and was like, hey, guys, talk about Motor Crush issue six. So I uh, I read it. Matt, did you read this? I did read it. I I thought it was better than Scales and Scoundrels. I, I, <laughs> so I, I, so I really want to review this book more than I want to review the other book. <laughs> well, we're going to do a rapid review on it. We're going to talk about it real quick. I, I remember I read issue one, maybe issue two of Motor Crush when it came out. And then I kind of put it down. I needed to catch up on it. But I read issue six. And now I really do want to catch up on this series. I really It's a great jumping on point. Alex, you were right. It, it's a flashback story, kind of like Black Magic issue six was. It kind of took you back to show you the backstory of these characters. And it's really a book with heart. It's a book with great characters that really kind of gets you invested. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going back and catching up on this. I thought it was like Speed Racer for a modern time. And... I'm very excited to kind of like see what's going on with this because there was like, you got the mafia, you got racing and you know, you got the pop and, and the kid racer. I was like, this is speed racer and this is really cool. And there was a couple cool scenes in there. And then since I didn't read the series at all, I was like, what is going on here? And then the ending, I was like, Oh, they just ran over his leg with a motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah. This is written by Brendan Fletcher and Cameron Stewart. It's got art by Cameron Stewart, as well as Babs Tarr and Heather Danforth. A lot of names on this book, and, and they're all great. The art is just, it's perfect for this kind of high-energy racing story that they're telling. It's got kind of like an old-school Bende, I think they're called Dots, kind of style to it, like an old-school comic would. And, and the colors just pop. Again, it's very lively. Matt, like you said, it does kind of feel like a Speed Racer cartoon, almost like an old-school cartoon, just in the art and the colors alone. So it's a great recommendation if you haven't been reading Motor Crush, I believe the first trade is out. You can go pick it up and just catch up. I was very impressed. I again, I I saw the title and I was like, yeah, I'm not. I was like, I don't get it. And then I read it and I was like, I get it now. I enjoyed it. Definitely go out and check it out. It's worth it's worth the money. I want to go out of order with our reviews today because Anthony makes this list and he's got Batman, he's got Maid Men and Scales and Scoundrels and. I read Made Men 
and I have to talk about it, Anthony. So I want to talk about that before Batman. Let's do it, man. I mean, I loved it too. I'm assuming you love it. I'm assuming that's why you want to talk about it first. I don't know if I love it, but I know it's interesting as fuck. It is. Let's get the credits out of the way. That way I feel good about myself. Paul Tobin is writing it. You got art by Arjuna Sassini, and it's colored by Gonzalo Duarte, lettered by Saida Tamafonte. A lot of awesome names in there. Making for an awesome book. This is a crime story with a little bit of uh, gothic horror thrown in there. I guess we, we can't really talk about this book without saying... Spo- without spoiling it, right? So we have to spoil it. I mean, it's in the solicits. It's in the previews. It's not really spoiling it. We can't get around it. The main character, the cop, she's a Frankenstein. Not, you know, she, she's descended from Victor Frankenstein's bloodline. And... Yeah, so her, she- her great-grandma, or great-great-grandma, was Frankenstein's sister. Yes. And apparently she was more fucked up than Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah, she got into like some some witchcraft or something, right? And now Jute, I think her name is Jute, or Jute, I think it might be Jute. I'm um I'm half Austrian. Jute? I'm half Austrian. Jute. J U T T E. I'm half Austrian, so I went to my mom and I was like, "Hey, how do you pronounce this name? I'm pr- I mean Frankenstein. I'm pretty sure that this is German." I know J's are usually pronounced with like a Y sound. So I'm thinking maybe her name is Yute. I don't know. But she she can't die. She can't die. So at the top of this book, top of this book, her and her team of cops are just slaughtered. They're led into an ambush. They're slaughtered. She survives because she's Frankenstein. She cannot die. And she wants to find who did it. I'm not, I'm not going to spoil the ending. But she wants to find who did it. And you know... I never research anything that you send me. I know you tell me and it breaks my heart. When you send me books, I just read them. Like, I don't even question it. I don't like try to get any backstory on them. So I was like, made men. I was like, I opened it. I was like, I don't know about this artwork. And I'm like watching it. I was like, this is the opening of Robo, RoboCop. Let me do that. Yeah, it's totally RoboCop. I was like, this is the opening of RoboCop. I had the same reaction to it. And I was like, oh, my God, what's going on here? How How is this going to twist? And I was like, and then they just obliterate her. And I was like, oh, maybe it's not her story. I mean, like, we, we've read other comic books where you're like, oh, this is the main character. Or we've watched Game of Thrones. And you're like, oh, this is the main character. And then they get killed off right away. And I was like, oh, it's going to go in a different direction. And then I flipped the page. I was like, oh, it's going in a completely different direction than I thought it was going to go. I was like, because I thought it was just this straight up, like, kind of noirish cop drama and you know and i was like oh my god this is insane it's everybody's getting obliterated and i was just like whoa and then then it takes the the sci-fi fantasy twist and i was like you sold me i was like, i can't believe you sold me i i am not blown away by the artwork but the dialogue is really impressive dialogue is great i like the artwork i think that it has kind of that gritty feel to it that we've talked about before that kind of really works well with both a cop drama and a horror book. So I I think it works. The dialogue is great. It's, it's kind of what we've talked about with other books before you're taking these ideas and these concepts that are so familiar to us, Frankenstein and cop dramas, RoboCop, like you said, and they're mashing them together. And I love sometimes listening to, to pitches. Sometimes a writer will say, Oh, I pitched this book as X, Y, and Z. I can totally see Paul Tobin 
going to Oni and being like, I want to do RoboCop, but with Frankenstein. And they were just like, yes, give us this. Yeah, because it's all the the bad guys even look like Frankenstein. The the I mean, not Frankenstein. They look like RoboCop. The, the police uniforms look like RoboCop. Like the opening is like solidly RoboCop. It, she, the grandmother, I, I gotta, I'm flipping through it. I got to rephrase. She was not a witch. She did not practice witchcraft. It's a health potion that is doing this. So before I didn't want, she's a chemist, you know, she's a chemist. Yes. I didn't want, I didn't want the trolls coming out and being just like, there are no witches. Like you, did you even read the book? I did. Uh, Oh, you don't have to worry about the trolls. The trolls have all the bullseyes on me. After my two articles this past week, the trolls (laughs) want me and they want me bad. And, and I apparently do not know anything about journalism. I don't know anything about business. And I am just a crazed fanboy. Apparently, that's that's my new my new title, crazed fanboy. Not just even the trolls. Some of some of our own staff, I think, have a bullseye on you for those articles. That's fine. I got I got to challenge the kids these days. Yeah, you gotta you gotta you gotta lead by showing them how far you can go. I mean, because anyway. what do we need? We need, do we need twenty two reviews of Thor Ragnarok in a few weeks? 23 23 review. That's exactly <laughs> what we need. Um, so yeah, Made Men, I love it. Oni Press, they got they got some really good titles out there. You know, we talk a lot about Image and even, you know, Boom, DC and Marvel, obviously. Oni is really doing some good stuff. I mean, kind of their claim to fame right now is Rick and Morty. They're doing the Rick and Morty comic. But they do have some really good creator-owned work. They just wrapped Letter 44, which was Charles Soule's creator-owned comic that he he started like right at the genesis of his career and it just wrapped up. And that was like last week. And now this week we're starting with made men. Like they, they're firing on all cylinders too. So if you're looking to buy an indie book this week, put your money down on made men. You know, you talked about like Charles soul and stuff. There is a series that I want to go back and reread because it's by Rick Remender and it's Battlestar Galactica. It's like one of his first books. It's like the new Battlestar Galactica. Back in the day, he wrote that was like one of those first books that he posted. And I want to see like where Rick Remender's head was at then because like that guy's good. He is. Sometimes you go back to early in their career, though, and it's a very different vibe. You never know what you're going to get. Oh, my God. No. Jeff Johns Avenger run is God awful. (laughs) Jeff Johns Avengers run is I tried to read it like I was like. Green Lantern's the best thing ever invented, which I already said when I was 12. But then when Jeff Johns took it over, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe what they're doing. It's amazing, blah, blah. And then I got the trade of Jeff Johns' Avengers, and I was like, this is going to be the best thing ever. And I read it, and I was like, what happened to Jeff Johns? Sometimes they need to just, you know, you know, kind of work on themselves. I mean, we talked about Donny Cates, about how his early stuff didn't really land, and then he started kind of shifting focus and writing more of what he was familiar with and it really hit home with people. Other writers, it's the reverse. I still contend that I like early Grant Morrison way more than late Grant Morrison because late Grant Morrison, after he was established and he kind of, they gave him more rope and like they kind of loosened his leash, he just went freaking batshit. But early Grant Morrison, when he still, they still kind of had him on something of a leash, I, I really enjoy. And I think I liked early Bendis more than I like Bendis now. 152% like absolutely like early ultimate spider-man bendis new avengers bendis all that stuff bendis my whole thing with bendis is he's always 
better when he's working on properties like he created. He didn't create New Avengers. That was it was still good. I mean, he did create Scarlet was really good. I really enjoyed Scarlet. Yeah, I mean, like Alias was good. His original Miles stuff is good. It's not as good now, but like it, it's when he starts having to play in other people's sandboxes that he just doesn't, you know, adhere to continuity and his writing goes off the wall. But yeah, early Bendis on his own creator own properties was was much better than later Bendis. Absolutely. Because when Bendis wrote the Jessica Jones, Luke Cage looking for a babysitter issue and they reintroduced Squirrel Girl, I, that I visually just remember that in my head and it's just because he was doing the panels thing. Cause we're going to talk about panels coming up soon because Tom King loves his panels, but Bendis was the king of the panels back in the day. He probably still is. I just don't read his stuff. Just the back I mean, and forth dialogue. Like he was like, it was really cool. He was like in this like Kevin Smith mode of dialogue of superheroes. And then you can only handle so much of it. You know, it's funny you even saying that because we're totally off the topic of Made Men <laughs> right now. But it's funny that you even mentioned that because Brandon Griffin, writer for the site, and I were talking not too long ago about how the dialogue in a recent issue of Spider-Man, his Miles Morales comic, is just so god-awful. And we didn't know what happened to Bendis' dialogue. It's just uh, not even that, but just the pacing of it was off. Like, I don't. I don't know what Bendis is doing right now. I don't know if he's distracted. Maybe he's doing other work that's taking his concentration away. But you know, if if you don't want your perception of Bendis's amazing dialogue ruined forever, don't read recent issues of Spider-Man. <laughs> anyway, this has been a great Made Men review. Matt, how many robots are you giving this? I'm going to give this four robots out of five. That's really? A, that's a positive for me. I am giving it. I'm going to stick with I was going to give it a 4.75. Okay. I thought you were going to go a lot higher, and I thought that that was going to be good in relation. But you had lower than I expected. But I'm going to stick to my 4.75. Because I, I really I, enjoyed this book. I it really, had originality. I, re- I really, I apologize for cutting you off. But it's all about the experience for me when it comes to reading comic books. And a lot of the negative stuff is coming from Oni Press putting a giant watermark all over the comic book. <laughs> it's it's a review copy. You I understand that, but still, it like really hurts this book, like oh, color wise and everything like that. And I get that, but it's still the it's still the experience of reading the book. And if you don't have a good experience, I mean, like, I would love to see. I'm probably going to go to the comic book store on Wednesday and flip through it and look it over and stuff like that. But I still this book could have used a better colorist. I think it's got a it's got a muted tone to it. Um, there's there's a few things here and there. I'm not a huge fan of the artwork, but the dialogue is just brilliant in it, and I love the conversation, and and I love the opening scene to it. But it's still Robotech. It's still Robotech meets Frankenstein. No, it's still RoboCop meets Frankenstein, and I. It's you know, it's not as original as it could be. So there, there's your four. There's a, you want the hard you want the hard critique. There's the hard critique. So that's funny to me because I weigh my review, my score heavily on originality, and I. I scored high because I felt like this book was original. But you, you know, we've had this discussion. I like the art. I thought that the muted tone worked really well with the story. But we're good to each their own, man. Guys, pick this book up. It's in stores now. If when you're listening to this, and when you buy it in stores, there's no watermark. <laughs> each week, we want to bring you an interview, either from a beat reporter from Monkey Spider Robots or a comic book creator. This week. 
we have Gary Maloney on the big show. Gary, how you doing? Lads, I'm doing excellent. It's great to be back. It was a long old stretch between the last time I've talked with you, but it's great to be back on. We have another great topic to talk about. Last time we were on, we talked about small press day. And now we, again, we have another kind of retailer subject to talk about, and that is Marvel variant covers, right? Yeah, things have been going a bit weird in the mighty world of Marvel recently. You don't say. Yeah, so I don't know if you've been following them re- recently. Like, they're, they're a small enough publisher, so sometimes you don't always hear what they're doing <laughs> these days. But they've got this whole lenticular cover thing going on. And, you know, objectively, that's not a bad thing. You know, the idea of this, these lenticular covers where they kind of shift between one cover and another is cool. And, like, comic collectors, we're the kinds who love that that stuff like that kind of stuff like really gets us going and we we like being able to say oh we have this really cool cover that references old material because what marvel are doing is for their new legacy lineup uh, as part of the fallout from secret empire is that they're throwing back to old covers from their classics and their heydays and so they're putting out these lenticular covers which show these homage covers but also the original covers and that in and of itself wouldn't be a problem because that's a cool concept the problem is what they're actually requiring retailers to to get these covers. Like, in order to, like, these are special covers. They aren't going to be the regular covers that you get for these comics. Rather, you're going to have to order 150 times or even 200 times the amount of editions of that comic that you would normally get in order to be able to qualify for these covers. Which retailers is simply unsustainable and it leads them to a situation where they have to essentially buy comics that they know they aren't going to be able to sell in order to be able to get one or two copies of these lenticular covers which they might be able to sell at a premium but they're probably not even going to be able to sell them at a premium because they're only ordering them because their customers will think less of them somehow if they didn't get them because these lenticular covers are almost a sign of status within the industry. So this has led to a strange situation in which 72 different retailers from across the world have just said, simply said, all right, enough is enough. We are just not going to carry these, these covers whatsoever. And the ball is in Marvel's court if they want to play with it. And just so, so, everybody, just so everybody knows, there are about 3,000 retailers in the world. But this is one of the first times where a group of retailers have come together as one voice. And that's what's making it inter- interesting is that you, you know, getting 72 retailers together is pretty impressive because everybody's fighting over the same group of customers. You know, I mean, it's a finite amount of comic book customers. So to actually have people on a common goal in the comic book industry uh, on, the, on the retail side is, is pretty amazing. And, it, and it's usually because they're getting pushed so far that they have to kind of unionize to a certain degree. And uh, I'm Marvel has run a horrible retailer program since I can remember. And it's this is this sounds even worse. Yeah. And what's even more apprentices of this, this isn't 72 retailers in the US. This is 72 retailers across the world saying, hang on, lads, if we actually engage in this, we could easily go out of business. Because in order to be actually able to qualify for any of these lenticular covers, we have to oversubscribe so much. Like, we would have so much back catalogue and so much back material that we wouldn't be able to sell. That it is, it's bad enough that, that 
the situation for retailers at the moment is pretty dire in terms of pull lists not being collected and just having a load of comics that they can't shift. And then you put this on top of it, where in order to actually get any base level benefits, you have to oversubscribe for something you don't necessarily know that you can sell at all. And that puts them in the precarious decision. And it's led to a situation where I don't know of a single retailer in Ireland that is actually carrying these lenticular covers because of the amount of oversubscription you have to engage in to be in order to qualify for them. And I hate those variant covers that require you to buy, you know, X amount, the chase variants, whatever you want to call them as a name for them. That's slipped my mind, but it, it drives me crazy. Do you think some of these retailers to a certain extent are, this is finally at least some faction of humanity learning from history and saying, Hey, variant covers kind of crashed the industry in the nineties. I remember that happening. Let's not let that happen again. Well, I mean, let's, Try to just kind of get some numbers in in a realm, like because I'm I'm you know continuing to read about this and and I had to do these orders too. So what they're saying is like, you know, they're talking about I'll use Champions number thirteen. They have to reach a hundred and fifty percent goal uh, to order the variant cover. So if they normally order ten copies of Champions, they're gonna have to order fifteen copies to qualify for um, to get these extra covers. So you're looking at you know, like that's a one thirty percent increase of ordering for that. Then you get the variants, and and I don't know, are these variants going to go for retail cover price, or are these like special where like, you know, people are going to start jacking up the price, the like five or six bucks to get these variant covers. That's where yeah, I was kind of confused on them. That'll depend on the retailer itself. They, I think, they ultimately decide what they end up wanting to run it for us. I'm sure that'll vary from retailer to retailer. I mean, because yeah. if, you're, if you're a retailer, then like, okay, say you're spending an extra 30% on champions, and I don't know how many you're able to order because I don't have the information right in front of me, but then that lenticular cover, and I think that's the worst name ever for a cover, because uh, <laughs> it's almost like testicular cover. It's the testicular cover because uh, it's got two <laughs> covers on it. Uh, you know, that's where you, you break, that's your break. If you're a retailer, that's your break even. So if you spent, even if you're getting 50% off and they're four bucks a piece, so if you're spending, Two times fifteen. You're spending thirty bucks to get this one cover. You want to charge thirty bucks for that one variant, so that you break even on the rest of your stuff. So it's it's a business mindset, and it it creates a real pain in the ass moment for retailers because it's not that simple just to be like, oh, I need to order my ten copies of Champions, and everybody will be fine. No, I got to order more, and then I got to find somebody to buy this variant to get it. But like, I don't know. It's you don't have to buy it, which I'm glad these guys are doing. But I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing because you go to these conventions and you see variant covers all over the place that people are, like, dying to get. I mean, I think that would be fine if it was one that was, like... I think the difference between the convention exclusives and the retailer exclusives is that when you get the convention exclusives, you know that it's going to be only in that particular area. And you know that there's going to be a premium price attached to that. Whereas because these orders are part of previews and they're part of the regular order affair. There's a sort of expectation, I think, on a lot of part of the consumers. Like there's obvious the obvious solution that you present there is that if it takes this X amount of orders in order to get one of these lenticular covers, that the retailer just says, okay, well this five euro comic is now a 30 euro comic because of what it took to actually for me to actually get 
dysphoria. But there is not that same expectation of exclusivity from the consumer perspective as there would be with a San Diego Comic-Con exclusive cover. So I think there's that sort of, it, it, it's a kind of contrast of expectations on the, between the retailers and the consumers. But there's also the fact, and this is the really interesting thing, and the thing I, I, that saw a lot of these retailers join up together, is that whereas in the US, Marvel is providing a lot of uh, incentives and discounts based on how many of these you bring in. So say if you order 200% of what you normally would bring in, you can get a discount on that so that you can sell the regular covers for, say, a dollar less than you should normally to be able to make up for the costs normally. But these discounts aren't available internationally. They're only available in the US. So that leaves those particular re retailers in a precarious situation where they're saying, well, I have my American friend who's able to get it easily enough and he's able to get it for $5. $5. Why do I have to pay $20 for this particular comic? And, and I get, I, I totally understand that, but I mean, like, this is where, with cars, you know, the import cars here cost more. So, I mean, there is something, if it's published here and getting it to the, there is a cost of shipping it across the country. So I understand that business aspect of it. Um, the things that, like, I see that jump out at me that are kind of, like, really annoying is DC did their lenticular cover for the button crossover, and they charged one more dollar for that cover. And so, and they could order as many as they wanted, and there was no exactly. incentive. So, uh, this is basically coming down to like DC is running a business to embrace the retailers and to try to have a partnership with it. And then Marvel is on the other hand, like, no, we want to make as much money as possible, kind of thing. Like it's 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 two different business models, and Marvel's had this model for a long time. Like, just look at their just compare a DC Comics graphic novel same size to a Marvel Comics graphic novel and it's probably $5 more. Well, Matt, you and I also talked about legacy comparison to DC Rebirth where DC put out 80-page special for 2.99 and Marvel Legacy is less pages for 5.99 or 4.99 with 5.499. It's uh, you know, same concept. Marvel's marketing and their business side is really what their downfall. You and I, this just comparison popped in my head. Matt, we're Mets fans. Gary, you're in Ireland. I don't think this analogy will work as well for you. But we're Mets fans. To me, I hate the Mets ownership. I hate the way they run the team and the management. But I love the team. I love the team. I love the players. I love watching them succeed and stuff. It's very analogous because with Marvel, I still love these characters and these creators and the writers and the artists. But just the way it's being run makes me want to, like, friggin chuck half my Marvel books off my pull list. It's tough to buy Marvel books these days. And especially, I mean, like, you guys are like, hey, Matt, you know, go read the Vision trade. And then I was like, I don't want to buy the Vision trade because it costs so much money compared to, like, what other trades I can get for it. And it's, I, and I've seen, like, I opened up my store in 2006. And, and I closed my doors five years later. But, like, I've been following this industry since then, you know, for the past, what are we, 11 years now. And Marvel is one of the, it's such a weird industry to where like you're selling a person's product, yet the person doesn't care if you sell that product. Like that Marvel has no care or, or pride that all these comic book stores are busting their chops because owning a comic book store isn't easy and there isn't high profit in owning a comic book store. Like you do it as a passion. And um, so I, it's a bizarre industry where like, 
the distributors don't care about the retailers. And no one's really going to buy a lot of these either. And I think the retailers might even understand that. You used used Champions as an example earlier. If this was like Spider-Man or something like that, then you're ordering heavy and whatnot. But like Spirits of Vengeance, Marvel, you know, thing (laughs) two in one, like, like are A, do you really want to order heavy enough to get the lenticulars? And then B, are you going to spend that, you know, $15, $30, whatever the retailer charges to get the lenticular? Again, on a Spider-Man, maybe. But on Spirits of Vengeance, two in one, probably not, right? Well, and that's the thing is they're, the incentives to get the lenticular covers for Amazing Spider-Man are much higher than the Champions. Like Champions is 150% more than what you normally order to where Spider-Man, I think, is at least 200%, if not 250%. So, I mean, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, right in front of me but I know it's at least 200% more than what you normally buy for Spider-Man. And Spider-Man is a big title. So if you're, you know, if you're a medium-sized store like a, or even a small store, you got 50 customers that buy Amazing Spider-Man. And to get that variant cover, you now have to order 100 copies of Amazing Spider-Man. And what are you going to do in a small store with 50 copies of Amazing Spider-Man that nobody's buying? Like, that's, that's where, you know, Gary, I agree with you that it's like you're dogging it hard because then you have to sell that lenticular cover for i don't even know um a hundred bucks at that point in time and who's gonna buy that well it's just so interesting as well to see marvel do this because as anthony was saying like this is what crashed the industry back in the 90s like and marvel like were at the head of that at the time like they saw that firsthand they went into bankruptcy over this sort of practice so you think they should know better but also, they have this interesting thing in that they have Marvel Unlimited. So they're willing to engage in different business practices which they know that can be innovative but also profitable to them in a way that the other publishers aren't. Like, you don't see a version of Marvel Unlimited for DC. I mean, you see it kind of on Comixology for some of the image books, but it's not nearly as extensive or as all-encompassing as you see from Marvel. So it seems to be like this sort of cognitive dissonance within Marvel where they can say, oh, we can innovate, but also go back to our old practices and still come out on top. I do want to give DC a little bit of credit here. There is an app called Hoopla. Manny Gomez, another writer for the site, turned me on to this. Hoopla, all you need is a library card. It's free. And you use your library card and they have a number of books and comics available to you. And DC actually has a fair number of titles on there. So they don't have their own unlimited app, but they are kind of putting their things out through, you know, Hoopla and other things, which are free. You know who's not on Hoopla, though? Marvel, which makes sense because they have their unlimited app. But, you know, yeah, just 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 to give a little bit of credit to DC, there are they do have some sort of system out there. And I always when I analyze Marvel, I analyze looking at uh, Disney as a whole, uh, Disney films, and then I look at ESPN and now you look at Marvel because, you know, they're all Disney owns it all. And I'm like, OK, how did they handle ESPN? You know, when that's not making money, how are they going to handle Marvel Comics? I don't see the innovation from Marvel Comics that I would expect being under Disney. And that's where I'm like, does Disney just care about the movies and they don't care about potential storylines that could come out that make, could make you a lot of money? Like I would 
if I was running the business of Disney, I would be like, okay, Marvel Comics, you're my think tank. This is where all my original ideas are going to come from. I want you to be as successful as possible. And I would kind of run it more like DC, where it's like embracing the fans, giving as many fans possible a chance to get the product, you know, get it in their hands uh, with lower prices or, you know, however those incentives are to get the product in as many hands as possible. Because then, you know, when the movie comes out, it's like, okay, but I don't, I don't get what Disney's doing with Marvel. And I, I would be interested to see, like, who the upper management is on that deal and see if that changes over the next year. It's also an interesting thing in terms of, like, looking at the way Marvel and DC are both treating their audience at the moment, that you see DC doing things like its writer program in order to engage with its existing fan base, trying to foster that, uh, that group as its next creators. Whereas in comparison, you have multiple anecdotal stories coming out from a number of creators who are saying, like, we just have no interest in creating new characters for, Mar- for Marvel because we know that there's no actual benefit for us to create a new character for the X-Men because that character then belongs to Marvel or belongs to Fox and there's no chance of us ever getting any reward for that. Whereas you don't necessarily see that reluctance on the DC side, at least not to the same extent. Like, I'm certain it's there as in it's there for any work for higher comic arrangement, but well, I know, it just seems... I know Greg Rucka mentioned that, like, with the Vertigo line, they have a creator-owned deal uh, in place, but it's not as good as the deal that you get with Image. And so Greg Rucka's like, I'm not going to create any original characters or original series on Vertigo anymore because I'm waiting for that deal to change. And Vertigo keeps coming back to him and they're like, hey, you know, can you write a book for us? And he's like, has the deal changed? And he's like, not yet. You bring on a whole nother concept that just blew my mind when you mentioned that because we talk about Marvel and DC Comics and has the, due to the boom of, of movies, has that negatively, influ- negatively impact the comics because now the creators do not want to create on Marvel and DC because they don't get any of the cash. Oh my God, I could talk about that for a long time. Well, Marvel has their own imprint as well. They have their own Vertigo icon. And that's actually where Kingsman originally was published, was through Icon, Mark Miller. I was actually just reading up on Icon this past week. I think the Icon deal is even better than the Vertigo deal, if what I was reading is correct. So it's weird that, we don't, that we're not seeing more stuff coming out of there. No, but I'm talking about like superheroes. Like with the superhero, like, yeah. are we going to see another Venom? Or are we not going to see another Venom beca- or type character because the creator, uh, the you know, Dan Slott on Spider Man is like, I'm not going to get any of that money if there's a Venom movie. You know, I mean, like, that's where I I'm mean, going we're still it. seeing we're still seeing new superheroes though, right? We just Mosaic was just introduced as a new Inhuman, and the Inhumans are so hot right now. Like, you figure a new Inhuman is going to make its way to TV or a movie or something like that. So we I we are. Know, Anthony, are the Inhumans so hot? You know, I just, I, I, uh, Inhumans came out in IMAX this past weekend and nobody's talking about it. So no, they're not that hot apparently, I, but I mean, Mar- there was a showing down the road, but I had like, there was zero interest in going to see it. <laughs> yeah. Like Marvel, Marvel, I think likes, they're, they're saying that they're hot. I think Marvel's trying to push that they're hotter than they actually are, but even other new characters like Squirrel Girl, 
Where the hell did Squirrel Girl come from? She is crazy popular right now. She's going to really? be in the new really? How, how popular is Squirrel Girl? She's very popular. Not amongst us. Okay, we're older men. Like, But among teenage girls... She's been a very popular character. Her so, series. is there numbers like of sales in like the top one hundred? Like, where is she? Where is she on it? Because when I when you say popular, I'm thinking that you're selling at least fifty to a hundred thousand copies of a comic book. That's popular. Well, we can look that up. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. We could look that up, but I know at least she at least at, at minimum has a cult following. But again, point is that she's now she's going to be in a TV show. The chick from the AT&T commercials is going to be playing her in the new Warriors. And so we are still getting these characters. I think sometimes maybe creators, they don't expect it. Maybe the person who created Squirrel Girl, I doubt they expected that she was going to be as popular as she ended up being. Maybe yeah, if they had... Like, wasn't Squirrel Girl, I think it was originally part of the West Coast Avengers or something like that. But I know she went back ages and she only really became popular recently with Erica Henderson's run right. on Squirrel Girl. And I agree with what Matt says to an extent in regards to like he thinks that popularity is five to six Ks of a comic setting. But it's also just the mind share that character occupies. Like Squirrel Girl isn't for, for me and it isn't for I don't think anyone on this podcast. But it has enough mind share with people on, say, Tumblr reposting this particular panel from Squirrel Girl that even if the comics don't sell well, if there's some Squirrel Girl merchandise, which I've seen in comic book stores all around the place, like that stuff is selling in droves and that's what drives squirrel girl being the lead in the new warrior series like not alone to be get a new warrior series but squirrel girl is like leading it yeah like that shouldn't happen did she was squirrel, created did in 1992 by the way i just looked that up so i thought i thought she was much newer no because she, she came to prominence because i think she was luke cage and jessica jones babysitter like they were babysitting she was babysitting and she was always like when i think when like bendis was writing uh, Avengers, like she was like waiting for Wolverine to show up or something like that. It was some weird shit going on. Yeah, no, I, there's actually, there's actually, I'm on her Wikipedia page right now. There's a whole section on her Wikipedia page about her new Avengers time. Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, Seek a Nanny, blah, blah, blah. At one time entertained a brief relationship with Wolverine. Like, what? I, I, this is all news to me. And I remember that issue now because Wolverine says he doesn't like talking about it. <laughs> But still, I mean, she so she came around in the 90s. I don't think she was much of anything. And now she's this hit. I'm looking at her creators, Will Murray and Steve Ditko. I had no idea that Steve Ditko co-created Squirrel Girl. But like, are they are they flipping out right now? Because this character they created 25 plus years ago is now going to be in a TV show and they're not getting any recognition for it. Well, Steve Ditko. Well, we haven't seen the credits the yet. But the 90s, the 90s was was the epitome of creating insane characters. And then Image came out of that. Because like I th- we got Darkhawk, we got Nightmare. I'm trying to think of all the crazy we had. We had Carnage, Venom, Cardiac. I'm just thinking with with uh, Mar- with just Spider-Man alone from what I read. Like they were coming out with char- new characters all the time. I'm trying to think Solo, I think, came out of that time as well. Um, yeah, and then all of Marvel's big guys left. Because right. they weren't getting credit for it. Right. And then, like, what has been invented since then, all that people... Like, you think of Brubaker's greatest run on Captain America. Who did he invent? Bucky. He didn't invent somebody new. He took an old character that was already established and created Winter Soldier. 
crazy. We get a lot more new villains. We get a lot more new villains. Like I'm thinking of recent villains that have been created. Like I love Charles Soul introduced a villain in Daredevil. I think his name is Muse, who's like this sick, demented character. I, I think he's amazing. I think we get a lot more new villains than heroes nowadays. Are we? St- is Marvel tired. still obsessed with the Hood? Because I couldn't stand that villain. Yeah, he's still around. <laughs> They, they kept trying to make it a thing in the Ultimate Comics uh, with the hood, and then it just went absolutely nowhere. But I think the last major push for new characters I saw in Marvel Comics, like proper new characters, was Grant Morrison's run on New X-Men. And those characters are still the ones who are being pushed now as the young teenage X-Men that are coming up now. But that's nearly 15 years after that run started. And those are still the new characters that the X-Men are always trying to say, oh, they're going to be the next generation. They're the, in inverted commas, new mutants of our generation. But 15 years have passed since Quentin Quire first came on the scene. And people love Quentin Quire, but have we seen him move, move or evolve much beyond what he was originally? To an extent, yeah, but we haven't seen him act as a mentor. We haven't seen him evolve in the same way we saw the original New Mutants evolve or we saw Jubilee evolve into that new role. So no. Quentin Quire is like hiding on an island somewhere. He was just in Thor not too long ago. He was literally like, yeah, I'm just going to chill here. This whole Phoenix thing is going on. I'm isolating myself. Like they've literally written him onto an island somewhere. This is interesting. So we've established that Marvel doesn't care about retailers and Marvel doesn't care about the creative staff. Who do they care about then? Dan Slott, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) They care about keeping him on the payroll for some reason on Spider-Man. Because that guy's always eating dessert. I don't mind that Spider-Man run. I think it's not the best, but I don't mind it at all. If you're going to be on this podcast, you need to slam Dan Slott Spider-Man. It's one of the rules. But I think it's quite telling in that it took until 2012 for Jack Kirby to get an on-screen credit for any of the Avengers stuff. So yeah, yeah. or or Bill Finger, or even on the DC side of things, Bill Finger only recently got Batman credit. So I think exactly it's a huge problem in the industry. I think DC has taken strides on the retailer side of things, like we were talking about, and Marvel absolutely needs to catch up. And I I thought that's what Legacy was going to be, but between all the price tags and the variant covers, it's kind of hard to see how this is new or not even new, just quote unquote, a rebirth of their own instead of just more of the same marketing garbage we've been getting. Oh, but the bonus is Odin's having sex with the Phoenix. Oh, for God's <laughs> sake. Yeah. <laughs> No, because Gary, uh, earlier on this podcast, probably, I don't know, maybe middle, what do we have, 12, probably around like episode six, I was like, you know, if you want to fix the Fantastic Four, shoot them out into outer space and have the series be a just a, a thing where they're out in outer space and they're inventing new characters all the time. Because that was what was awesome about the 90s is they were inventing all these new characters. They even had cards at the time and it said rookies. And so I think there was like three years where you had rookie cards of all these new characters that were coming out. Um, And I was like, this would be awesome because eventually you would hit one, you would create something and people would be like, oh my God, that's the coolest character ever. And it would like be a Carnage or be a Venom or, you know, I'm trying to think of who else that is outside the symbiote universe. Uh, A Deadpool, a Deadpool character. Um, Cable. Cable. 
um, those characters. And what we're coming to the conclusion is, is we're never going to hit that era because the creators don't want to create new characters because Marvel doesn't want to take care of them if they create something new. And that's that basically means the Fantastic Four are not going to get that prominence that they deserve. I'm sad again. No, they're, they'll just they'll, they'll take them. They'll take them to Image or... In the case of the Fantastic Four, you know, Jeff Lemire will just swap them out for DC characters and go do the uh, the Terrifics or whatever they're going to be. Yeah, I guess uh, now I'm sad, too. Jeez. Or DC bringing back Challenger of the Unknown. I still have no clue what's going on with DC. I'm so confused. I, 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 like, I know everybody that's in the universe, but they're just all out of place. It's like somebody came into my room and... All my comic books were on the shelf in order, and then somebody just rearranged them all, and I'm like trying to read all the comics out of order, and that's how I feel like with DC right now. Well, DC doesn't—they've—they've they've established that they're not writing for continuity anymore. Like Dan DiDio, Jim Lee, like they've established they're like we just want to tell good stories that you can pick up in a single volume. Like they're—they're they're looking to just put out like you know year ones or or whatever it is, like these compact stories without much regard to the overall continuity of the universe. That's their goal right now. They've established, like, they, they think that'll lead to better storytelling. Except all the Watchmen stuff, which is weird and only really makes sense to people who've been following the industry for quite some time and realize the meta joke that's kind of going on and DC saying, yeah, we kind of got dark there for a while, so mm-hmm. we're going to have, have that thing addressed by literally having the epitome of what was dark about our universe fight the light parts of our universe i think uh i think we solved the industry today i think i think we think we did it guys but well i'd like to think so <laughs> like if, if duke thomas can exist then there's hope for the industry there we go gary thank you so much for your time lads it's always a pleasure i didn't think that this would be as much of a springboard for an interesting discuss discussion as it was but it was fantastic to chat with you about it what else are you reading this week, Gary? This week now, uh, I'm rereading The Broker. Uh, the Broker, is, because The Broker just is a Irish comic, uh, the first Irish comic from an imprint called Rogue Comics. Uh, it's essentially a political crime thriller that is very much reflective of the Trump era, even though it was written like two or three years ago originally, and it's only now coming out. But it's very prophetic in that, that way. And that's getting its second printing. So it initially had a small print run at Dublin Comic-Con, and now it's available generally for a second print. Uh, So I'll be looking forward to having another read of that. And Scaling Scoundrels, which you guys have already reviewed, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into that this week uh, properly, because uh, I only just started doing a Dungeons & Dragons game myself. Uh, I'd never played it before until about a couple of weeks ago. But I I very much was, was... appreciative that there was a comic about that sort of old fun fantasy coming out just at that t- at the right time for me so i'm looking i'm looking forward to getting stuck into that proper hi man we'll talk to you in a month lads we'll talk to you later on okay when you put comic books in the list like what do you what are you thinking of because you put scales and scoundrels number one in there and i'm like were you drinking a little bit when you picked that out no, so when I'm picking books, I'm looking for new issues, new number ones, you know, for independent creator-owned stuff or just kind of big, important, mainstream stuff. And 
I was going back and forth between two image number ones. We had Kingsman, the Red Diamond number one, which is the sequel comic to Kingsman, the Secret Service, and Scales and Scoundrels. And I read Kingsman. I was like, oh, this is good. If you're a Kingsman fan, guys, pick that book up as well. But then I read Scales and Scoundrels, and I'm like, you know what? This I really enjoyed it. I felt like it was really fun, a good read. It was enjoyable for me. And I was like, you know, this book deserves the press more than Kingsman does. So I so I picked Scales and Scoundrels. I know who will like this book, but it's just not me. So guys, this is a it's a fantasy tale. It's dragons and the small town. It's kind of old timey. You know, there's, you know, gold pieces or whatever. And to me, it felt a, it's a big reason that I enjoy this. It felt like an animated movie to me. Like I've been watching a lot of animated movies lately with Brooke. And, you know, I could see this in the realm of like a Disney or a Studio Ghibli kind of film. Like it felt it's lighthearted. It's not a heavy read. It's just a fun kind of adventure fantasy romp. And sometimes that's all you really need. You don't always need to read grim and gritty Tom King, Mr. Miracle tries to kill himself stories. Oh, man, Tom King. Uh, I don't want to go on that tangent yet. That's why I saved him for the end. I uh, I read it and I read it and it's it's weird because I, I read Made Men and I read all the Batman books you sent me before them. And, and those eight books or seven books that you sent me, I flew through. This one was a struggle to get through. I mean, number one, the the artwork is not my cup of tea. It's it's definitely no, the the artwork is very much Yu-Gi-Oh. It's, it's, car, it's cartoony. It's, it's cartoony. It's very Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah. Like it's 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 got that kind of Pokemon esque feel to it, and it opens. I like the opening. The opening scenes. But it seems that for me, it seemed to kind of like deteriorate a little bit. And then I just didn't like understand the point of it. And, and I don't want to I, I don't want to bash this book. I really don't. But there is there's a few dialogues points in it that, you know, seemed really unoriginal. And the lettering style, I almost looked at the lettering to see if it was the letterer of the Monkeys Fighting Robots comic book that I'm putting together. And it's not. It's not, but I this new style of lettering where you don't stroke the outside of the cloud works on dark backgrounds, but as soon as you put it in a light background, it something feels off, and it's the strokes missing is what makes it feel off, and and I'm just not a fan of that style, and it's just it's the fonts in the lettering look weird. And then when the sound effects had, there was sound effects and then there weren't sound effects. And then some of the sound effects don't match what's going in. Like the layering of the book just doesn't have a good feel to it. I do like the colors. The colors, I'm a fan of the colors because I thought the book was very vibrant and bounced and had lightweight to it and, and like worked really well. Like if this was like a muted tone book, like I, it would have been god awful. But like I thought, the colors, the colorist on this book did an amazing job. Yes, it's art as a whole, pencils and colors and inks by Galad, G A L A A D. Galad, just one name, like share. And, and yeah, it, it worked really well for me. Even the pencil style, like you said, it, it is cartoony, it's childish. But again, that's what made this book feel like kind of a 
like an animated movie to me. I thought it worked well with the story. Everything that you described, the the lettering, the paneling, the sound effects, all that stuff, all valid. It's all valid, and you know, I, I agree with you on some stuff. Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? Oh, oh, yeah. Let's go back. Okay, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> you got to work on it. You got to work on it. I was like, I thought you were building it up for, oh, good for you. No, because, because I was actually, no, the, the okay, good for you works if like I disagree with you, but I was actually, I was, what I was, what I was going for was that those are all technical things. You're va- they're all valid reasons to like or dislike a book. What did you think of the actual story itself? The, the story written by Sebastian Gurner. What did you just think of the premise and the story? I really don't know what's going on. No, I mean, it's a first issue. It's introducing you to the world. You don't know every detail. I mean, there's there's secrets. I know you love secrets because sometimes we review a book and you're like, oh, why they give me that up top? Like, they should have saved that and made me wonder for three issues. Like, you don't know everything, but you have a general feel of the world, right? I guess. I mean, I, of, you know, let's promise, I, I felt bad. I mean, and I'll reread it and see if I, you know, I'm going to reread it and see if it was my issue. But I was like, I didn't realize it was a boy or a girl until they established it was a girl. I was like, that was like my first thing. But that's that goes back to artwork. Oh, going come on, on, man. It's 20. It's 2017. Gender's fluid, man. Doesn't really matter. OK, matter? okay that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> uh, Don't be judgmental, man. Come I'm not. On. I'm just I'm just saying that, like, we, you know, if it's supposed to be a girl, like I probably should know, I guess. I don't know that it's a girl or maybe that's my own. Flat brain, you know, putting down what are my ideals about it, and I'm just trying to, I, like, yes, I'm like, but you didn't see a dragon. Was she? A, was there a dragon? Is she a dragon? I don't know what's going on. Those are the questions, though. That's what's gets going to keep you reading. It's like, what's up? Where'd the fire come from? Is she a dragon? Is there like what's going on? Like, they they gave you some questions that they are setting up that you know you have to keep reading to answer. You can't you can't pick and choose, man. You can't bash this book. For giving you mystery, and then get mad at another book. But I don't know what the I don't much. know what the purpose of this book is. Is she just like wandering around, like the dude from Kung Fu, and going on from adventure to adventure, or like you know, like well, you you get it by the end. She's teaming up with this troop. Are you sure she is? Yeah, that's kind of. I mean, that's that's where they're leaving it off. That's what it seems. So it'd be a huge tease otherwise if they left us on like that you know, last panel of her, like, oh, do you want to join us on the adventure of a lifetime? And then issue two starts with her just saying no and walking away. Like, that would be, that would be terrible. I don't know. The big scary guy at the end with his two dogs, that, that's what, that's what will keep me around. Yeah. I, like I said, I thought it was fun. Sometimes you just need a light, fun book like this or an I Hate Fairyland. It's good to break up some of the heavier stuff in my pull list. I enjoyed it. I am going to give it a four out of five monkeys. Okay. You know, we're, we're, we're going to have like a math heavy episode, but like she gives her one copper coin to the poor person, the poor kid. But she could have bought a whole bushel of apples for one copper coin and she could have fed all the poor people. I don't think she knew that at that time. I should know. Maybe she just didn't know. But then she steals the apple, and I was like, oh. I was like, this person is not smart. I am not a fan of him. That was that was poor economics. I'll <laughs> agree with you there. She should have she bought 
the bushel for the coin and then evenly distributed the apples amongst the poor people. I'll, I'll agree with you. So maybe, she's not a, a, an economist. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, how, many robot, how many monkeys did you give this? I gave it four. Four. Uh, and this is out of five? Yes, it's our scoring system. I should know our scoring system. You came up with it. I did. I did come up. I'm going to give it three. Like it's an, it's an average book for me. You know, I should have, I should have predicted that because you know you're a you know forty year old man. Maybe a book about a young girl in a fantasy land isn't you know you're you're maybe you're not the target demo for that. I don't know. I'm not saying that I am either, but oh uh, no, I just learned a shit ton about you with that statement. <laughs> that sounded, I don't know. Again, my girlfriend is super into like fantasy and stuff, so I've just been watching a lot of this. Like Tangled is her favorite Disney movie, so like I'm just you know maybe I'm more comfortable with this kind of stuff. I don't know, dude. She needs to grow up and she needs to watch Moana. Like, she, just don't. We, she did see Moana. She likes Moana. We we enjoyed Moana. We saw that. But she likes Tangled more. She does. She enjoys Tangled a lot. She's Tangled. <laughs> you tell her that next time you see her. Is she going to it? No. You dropped she the ball. Go. You dropped the ball. She won't go. She won't go. <laughs> I am scared shitless to see it, man. And but I'm still oh, I, going. I cannot wait. I cannot. We're recording this on Monday. I specifically needed this episode to be done before Tuesday. I'm recording it. I'm going to go home. I'm going to edit it tonight. I want nothing on my plate so I can just enjoy our screening of it tomorrow. I don't think I could eat tomorrow. It's going to be so scary. It's getting incredible reviews. Speaking of scary, Tom King, that guy, what's his endgame? No, endgame was uh, Scott Snyder's Batman. Oh. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little joke. Insider comic book nerd jokes. <laughs> uh, no, I, so this is the War of Jokes and Riddles interlude, Batman issue 30. This is the second interlude. We talked about the War of Jokes and Riddles early on, like part two, I think we reviewed, and I still wasn't totally grasping. I was enjoying it. But now that we're this far into it, and now that I see what Tom King's doing, like this story is paced in a way that I wasn't expecting. I think the first two issues, it took me a little while to get used to it because it's not like a continuous fluid story. Like each issue is a chapter and there are time jumps and they don't fill you in completely. You kind of have to fill yourself in. And it, it's taken from all these different points of view and it, it weaves itself together in a weird way. And it, it took me an issue or two to realize what was going on, but it's really, it's really a great story. And I love these interludes, the Ballad of Kite Man. I love them. As a matter of fact, I kind of want to use this review to kind of springboard into a larger discussion of like, what makes a lame, boring character like Kite Man interesting? Well, we can get into that in a little bit, but what uh so so you're down. You caught up. I sent you the whole run of the War of Jokes and Riddles so far and you read the whole thing? Yeah, I went from 25 to 30 and that's where I'm I'm kind of lost on what 30 was about because 30 did 30 have the dinner in it? No, that was last issue. Okay. That issue is amazing. Yes, 29 the dinner <laughs> issue. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> that issue is amazing. Like so is, amazing yeah. and I think like 30 is kind of the payoff to the joke. And I I also still have so many questions about this book and what the end game is. And that's why I'm reading it. And I know that end game is Scott Snyder. But like there is a joke to this. 
there is a punchline, and I'm trying to figure out what that punchline is. Like, why the Joker is not smiling. Like, why he doesn't get the jokes. Like, Riddler, I get. Like, even the Joker said at the dinner, he's like, you're the Riddler. Whatever. Like, they're even alluding to, like, why is the Joker having a feud with the Riddler? Because the Riddler doesn't even, like, belong in the same room as him. And that's my, like, juicy tidbit of, like, ah, like, how is it all going to come together? And I liked what they did with 30. Is that the beginning of a punchline, I believe? Maybe. I mean, the end game, something bad is going to happen because the whole point that Batman is retelling the war of jokes and riddles to Catwoman is he wants to tell her about his darkest moment, his biggest failure. So there's going to be a down note at the end of it. And somehow Joker has to come out of it because we see him smile and get back to his normal self later on in continuity. So there has to be something down there. I don't know. I don't see this as being like the start of a punchline because this is technically part two of a story that began in issue 27, the Kite Man story. Yeah, but this is the reveal that like he like maybe it's not the beginning of the punchline, but it's like so if you're on a roller coaster, the roller coaster goes up and then it goes down. And so that's where the thrill is. So I would have to say that the Kite Man tale has been going up that hill. But by the end of 30, you were looking over the drop and getting ready to fall. Yeah. Uh, yeah, We're definitely, I mean, we only have like an issue or two of this. Because issue 32 is when we get Catwoman's answer to the proposal. They've drugged this out beyond all belief. Like this is the American Idol longest 22 parts of like, and the winner is. (laughs) But we only have a couple of issues left. I need to know. Kite Man obviously is going to have something to do with this because why else would you, I'm not going to say waste because they're two of my favorite issues in this whole story, but why would you spend two whole issues telling the ballad of Kite Man if there's not some big payoff in the end? So Okay, so the two, oh, so I'm I'm cutting you off all day with this Batman thing because I have so many questions, so many answers, but one, Kite Man's going to die. Like that's the, that's one, that's one lane is Kite Man's going to die or two, Kite Man turns into a villain that we're very familiar with. Well, K- Kite Man's been around. Like, Kite Man's not like a new villain. Like, he comes from back in the day. Oh. I guess I don't, yeah, have, like, I don't have good like, Batman knowledge then. No one really knows Kite Man. Like, Tom King snagged an, a villain out of obscurity. A villain that's literally been ranked online as one of Batman's worst villains of all time. He just snagged him and he kind of turned him around, which I love. It goes back to, you know, what makes a lame, boring character interesting. I love when writers take weird, you know, properties and kind of revamp them and just show that if you put the right, you know, pen behind it, you'll get a great story. I mean, we've seen that with, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy. We've seen it with the whole Marvel cosmic thing. Abnett and Lanning took a bunch of obscure characters, made them amazing. Jeff Johns has done it time and time again over at DC with Green Lantern and and... and Flash and, and all these characters that were kind of gone and forgotten. And and now we're seeing it with Kite Man. We, we talked about it with Gary and Squirrel Girl, even, who was around for 25 years, and now she's back. Like, I love... And I think the core of that is that you take a character out of obscurity, and I think the key to it is just making them relatable, sympathetic. I think the key to just making a sympathetic, relatable character that you know previous writers have just kind of written off. Bill Finger was the creator of Kite Man. 
And it was uh, in August sure. 1960. No, I'm looking at it. You, you just good for me? Did you just good for me with that one? <laughs> no. Abilities. Excellent hang glider pilot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, he, like, he's a character that no one, Bill Finger, no one took the time to make sympathetic or relatable. They just figured they need someone for Batman to punch, and they just wrote Kite Man, and now Tom King makes him sympathetic, makes him relatable, and all of a sudden, now he's, you know, we're gonna get Kite Man action figures or something, and people are going to be loving him. Well, maybe just the origin of Kite Man is Batman's failure because the Riddler kills his son. And and maybe and maybe he does die, you know, because, again, we're in rebirth now. They can rewrite continuity all they want. Maybe this is the birth, the rise, and the fall of Kite Man, and that whole thing is Batman's failure. Is he sat by as this innocent man fell into evil and then expired this is an interesting comment tom king is is uh an interesting writer to begin with he's an interesting person but the body count with this storyline is huge and the casualties of just the average person is astronomical for a batman comic book and i I almost feel like it's out of character for batman to not stop it because we're at a lot of people dying Yes. And again, it's his darkest hour. It's supposed to take place early in his career. This is between year one and the long Halloween. So he's not really sure what else to do. I mean, he's kind of at a loss. It's not he's not just fighting the Joker. He's not just fighting the Riddler. He's not even just fighting the two of them. He's literally fighting his entire rogues gallery in a war with each other. So I think he's just throwing shit against a wall and seeing what sticks. I mean, that's what the dinner was about, right? Like He's like, I literally have no nothing else to do. No ideas. So I'm just going to have dinner with these guys. And now he's even siding with the Riddler and fighting on his side. Like, he just doesn't. Yeah, but he got the Riddler to stop killing people. Like, that yeah, was part well, of it. Because he was... knew he could. He, he would never be able to get the Joker to do that. But I think that's the whole reason. It is kind of out of character that, you know, Batman's the guy that's supposed to solve every problem. But early in his career, you know, it, it would it would make sense that he couldn't solve every problem. If this happened now in like present day, current day continuity, he probably, you know, he lives from experience and he learns and he would know not to do it. And the, since the death toll is so high and so astronomical, it's taking me out of the book because I'm like, I feel like some other hero would show up at this point in time, like a five day battle between Deathstroke and sharpshooter ripoff Deathstroke. What I forgot his name. The sharpshooter is Deadshot. Yeah. So Deathstroke and Deadshot, they couldn't even... I forgot it's DC. They just put death in front of their name, and, and they're good. I feel that with a five-day battle, some other hero should have shown up. Like, my my bullshit Spider-Sense meter kicks in on certain things, and I feel like this is such an epic book to where you're like, somebody should have told Tom, like, hey, you're in the DC universe. Like, you need to maybe scale it down a little bit i don't think they ever want to scale it down i think I, again it's kind of you can still DC. have that debt i'm sorry i'm cutting you off it's batman i apologize <laughs> you can okay. you can have this like you can have this death toll and it could be like jack the ripper style where everything's just kind of like silent but when you start having a five day all out like battle royal through gotham like deadshot and deathstroke had that's where like 
Wally West is like, oh, I'm kind of in, you know, on the coast, but I'll, I'll zoom over there and kind of help you out. As far as the dark and grittiness of it goes, we've had DC comics that have gone really dark and gritty and bloody. And I'm not just talking about like Watchmen or Vertigo titles. Like we've gotten it in mainstream Batman continuity, especially from Frank Miller. Like, I think it's something that you've come to expect and that you can expect, especially from a writer from Tom King. You don't put Tom King on a book and not expect this to some level. You know, they have editorial oversight on it. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he's trying to go bigger and grander on it. Uh, and then, I mean, on the side, you have other Batman titles. You have Scott Snyder's All-Star Batman medals out there now, too. If you're looking for more of like a lighthearted, less, you know, bloody Batman tale, you have those. So maybe that's also why they kind of are giving Tom a little bit more leeway with the main Batman title, because they know they have other titles out there that can kind of fill other needs for other markets. But I'm I would not, not want to read I'm this. I'm not saying it, it's other needs. I'm I'm just saying that, like, in my head, as a comic book reader of of time and space, it's a really good tale. If I, but I have to keep my brain in a very singular universe with it, because as soon as I start asking questions, which this book makes you want to ask questions, you start having like an internal nerd fight of how this would pan out. Did you notice uh, not so many grids, not so many panels this issue? The problem is I read five, six issues at the same time. I'm so confused. Okay, so I I recently read Tom King's Omega Men. I, I picked up the trade at MegaCon. I finally read it, and it's phenomenal. Like, if no one has read Omega Men, go out there and read it. It's it's an amazing 12-issue run. Kyle Rayner, when he was still the White Lantern, gets involved. It's very politically charged. Like, it's it, the whole thing's an allegory for... The, the, you know, whole conflict in the Middle East with Iraq, you know, Tom King was over there in the CIA, so he had a lot of feelings on it. It's all in this book. It's great. But at the end of the Omega Men, Kyle gives this speech and I read it and I'm like, I need to bring this up the next time we talk about Tom King. I'm going to read this speech to you that Kyle wrote, and it's going to give you some insight into Tom King's paneling and his grids. Kyle says, I used to draw comics before all of this, the ring, before everything. You know comics, right? Panels, pictures, adventure. You probably don't know, but to separate the panels, you draw these lines, gutters they're called. You can kind of make a grid out of them. It's weird. I'd stare at them, the grids. They'd look like something familiar. Took me a while to see it. All those hanging crosses. It's a cage, right? They're just bars on a cage. The story, the adventure is locked behind them, separated from us, as if it's something savage, as if we're something civilized. And I read that page, and I was like, holy shit, everything makes sense now. Tom King's whole panel structure, there's meaning behind it. He's not just doing grids for grid's sakes. I love it. And then there wasn't grids in this book. No, but I mean, there still are some grids. There's no. It's not like Mr. Miracle where it was an entire book of, you know, nine-page grids. But Okay, yeah, okay I, so I, let's talk about 30. Issue 30, Kite Man's being interrogated by Riddler, and it's a six-panel design, and that looks like a cage so what you just read there and then you read the final pages from batman 30 and you have the mindset of tom king now you're like oh shit yeah and it's like you were just talking about with how this is kind of a a gritty bloody batman tale it's savage right like there's a savage tale going on and you know the grids are trying to keep it over there behind the you know behind the, the 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 cage 
No, Tom King. He's a good writer. I, I like this. I'm, I'm coming around on this Riddler. The last time we talked about it, I kind of... Oh, he looks some... like a tool, though. I'm still not the biggest fan of his design, but the more I get of his character and the more I get of his dialogue and the writing, the more I'm letting the design, you know, kind of not even slide. The more I'm just coming around on it. I'm just like, oh, this is this Riddler. Yeah, it's a, I, it's a good villain. I, I still think he's he's got something coming to him that's going to be epic, and it's just going to be like, it's going to crush all his hopes and dreams. Like, I feel like this is the strongest the Riddler will ever be in Tom King's universe, and it's all coming down. How many robots are given issue 30? Oh, man. Man. They blew up Man Bat. Batman, no, they blew up Batman. They blew up Man Bat. I was a huge fan. Oh, the artwork in this is so good. The yes, bro- Clay Man kills it. It's just solidly. I oh, love- and colors by Jordy Blair, who did colors uh, on the Vision. Oh, really, <laughs> Jordy Blair? Like, can we not say enough good things about her? Um, we understand. Seth Man, Seth Man did the inks. Clay Man on pencil, Seth Man on inks. Are they brothers? Oh, it's just the man, man. It's the man. Go ahead, continue. Now I'm cutting you off. That's fine. There's just a lot of brilliant panels in this book. This is a solid. This is a solid comic book. This is what you teach classes about with this comic book. I'm gonna give it a four point five. I am also gonna give it a four point five. Like the frog makes it for me. The, <laughs> the the frog on page eleven, I think, because it's it could just be a simple frog, and then it's there in three panels. Like it could just be there in one panel, but no, Tom's like. This frog has meaning. I don't know what the meaning <laughs> of the frog is, but um, I wonder if I can. When can we show this stuff to people? Can we like grab a panel, or do I have to wait till Wednesday? Because I'm you gonna have to wait. Until I'm gonna Wednesday. screenshot this, and I'm gonna send it to Tom King, and I'm gonna ask him what's the frog mean, and hopefully it gets no. back to us, and we'll have that answer for you next week. Hopefully, just don't post until Wednesday when this episode airs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that was an intense episode, my friend. It was. I'm. I'm it was em- packed. I'm emotionally drained. Emotionally drained. It was packed. We didn't even get to follow up on Doom Patrol, and I know you wanted to. No, that book's god awful. Don't read Boom. <laughs> don't read, read it. Don't read Boom Patrol. I don't even know what to call it. No, don't read Boom Patrol. That's a whole <laughs> other book. But Doom Patrol, you should read. Oh man, I I don't know. No, I'm not. I'm not reading. <laughs> Jared. Go back to music, please. No, Doom Patrol. Giant talking cats. I love it. Hi, uh, uh, Anthony. Hopefully we survive it and we can talk about comic books next week or are we on vacation? I'm on vacation next week. We are on vacation next week. So no show, but we will be back the following week. Ooh, we're going to have a lot to talk about then because it's two weeks worth of comic books. Oh, it'll be amazing. Once again, there are several ways to continue the conversation after the show. Follow us on Twitter at monkeys underscore robots. You can look at all our silly photos on Instagram at monkeys fighting robots. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Sardo. My co-host Anthony is also on Twitter at the underscore great underscore ace. He's got to get a shorter handle. The biggest compliment we receive is when the subscriber number goes up on Blog Talk Radio. If you have a chance, we'd greatly appreciate a review of our show on iTunes. As always, the best way to listen to the show is on our website, monkeysfightingrobots.com. Fun. Who's for Chinese? There are so many people that made the 12th episode of the comic show a success. 
special shout out to Gary Maloney calling us across the pond. And then there's always my co-host, Anthony Composto. Stay nerdy, my friends. Jessica Wynn designed the Monkey's Fighting Robots logo. Are you a monkey? Are you a robot? The staff of Visual Realm built our website and keeps us up and running. To all my friends, family, and the interweb, thank you very much for your support. I'm Matt Sardo, and this is Monkey's Fighting Robots.